Everybody gets a piece, we're going mainstream. Everybody's gonna eat, we're going mainstream. All my family is singing. See you on mainstream, we're going mainstream. Wall Street to Melrose Avenue. We're going mainstream. Venture capitalists to athletes to we're creators. We have a special episode today on Alt Goes Mainstream. Our guest today is Henry Ward, the CEO and co-founder of Carta, one of the most innovative and exciting companies in private markets. Henry founded Carta from the kernel of an idea, and they are now trusted by over 30,000 companies, 5,000 investment funds, and 2.1 million employees for cap table management, compensation management, liquidity venture capital solutions, and more. They've raised over a billion dollars from the likes of Silver Lake, Union Square Ventures, Andreessen Horowitz, Tribe Capital, Maritech, and many others. Carta has been included on the Forbes World's Best Cloud Companies, Fast Company's Most Innovative List, and Inc.'s Fastest Growing Private Companies List. Henry's a serial entrepreneur who was previously the founder and CEO of Second Sight, a portfolio optimization platform for retail investors. He built Carta with a deep sense of passion for helping people to become investors in private markets and become equity owners. Henry and I had a fascinating conversation about how he's built Carta into a category-defining company for private markets. We talked about the benefits of being a plate-spinning company and how that's good for a network effects business, why competing with spreadsheets can create a special business, and how it leads to the creation of other successful businesses as time goes on, why we've entered the ownership era and what that means for founders, employees, and investors, and what the future of private market liquidity looks like, as well as some gems on people management and company building. Thanks, Henry, for coming on the Alco's Mainstream Podcast to share your wisdom. We hope you enjoy. Henry, welcome to the Alco's Mainstream Podcast. Thanks, Michael. Great to be here. Pleasure to have you on. There's so much to talk about when it comes to Carta in terms of how you've built a platform that's evolved over time as private markets have also evolved. I'd love to really start with the start of Carta because I think that informs so much of how you've built and transformed this business over time. What was the key insight that drove you to start Carta? I think it was two. One was sort of the problem and the second was the solution. So the problem we saw back in 2012-13 was why did the public markets work so well, so efficiently? You could, at the time, buy Google stock for $7 on E-Trade with a click of a button. Everything moved seamlessly online. It all made sense. And then in the private world, it was all on paper. If you wanted to invest in a seed stage startup, it would cost $30,000 in legal fees, take 60 days to close, and you would literally get a paper stock certificate in the mail as your proof of ownership. And these are both equity markets, public, private, they're both equity capital markets, but they operated so differently. But that was the question that we wanted to answer. And our solution or our way that we answered that question was that In the private world, there was no infrastructure. There was no database that owned all private stock ownership. Everything was distributed in paper, stock certificates, and contract agreements. Where in the private world, they had this big company, the largest company no one's ever heard of, called the Depository Trust Corporation, which is the master settlement platform. If I buy 100 shares of Google stock, that's the database that gets updated. And our idea was, well, could we go build this database? And the wedge in building this database for the private markets was to own the cap table of companies. Could we build a cap table platform to capture all of these assets, transfer these equity assets online and do that in one centralized database? That was the idea that Carta was born from. Did it ever cross your mind, say, well, 
NASDAQ or NYSE do this in public markets, they have that infrastructure. They could probably just do this in private markets. Walk me through back then what was going through your brain when you looked at, you mentioned DTC as well. Walk me through some of the things you were thinking about. I always wondered why nobody solved this problem before. It was actually one of the most common investor questions I got in the seed round. Angel investors would say, hey, why has nobody solved this? And I always thought I was the least qualified person to answer that question because I was the one that wanted to go solve this. I think the quick answer is that it was an innovator's dilemma problem. If you're NASDAQ or NYSE or the Depository Trust Corporation or Computer Share, you're managing billions of dollars in revenue. And then there's this little quaint niche problem about paper stock certificates in the private markets and cap table software. It just didn't move the needle. Nobody in those organizations could get a promotion by solving this problem. So they just didn't. And that's why startups exist. Innovator's dilemma is a wonderful model to understand why startups can exist in a world where Bigger companies always have more resources. They should be able to win everything, but they don't. And it's because structurally the companies aren't organized to solve these niche problems that suddenly become non-niche problems. That's what cap tables became, was a non-niche problem. Do you think it's one of those things where there's so many steps to go from here to there when imagining how do cap tables then get to creating a private markets exchange akin to a NYSE or NASDAQ, that it's just hard for people to have that vision and roadmap in their mind? I think that's right, Michael. I even had an institutional seed investor, and he passed. He's really well-known. And he said, you know, Henry, I see what you're trying to do, but I don't like ideas that have gates. I don't have ideas that have steps. First, you got to win the cap table market, and then you've got to get network effect, and then you've got to build an exchange, and then you have to attract liquidity, because every one of those steps is an opportunity for the company to fail. I like one idea. You have to believe one thesis, and then that gets you to a large outcome. That is the traditional venture mindset. I think that's changed. I think venture has become more complex over the last decade. But back in 2012, 2013, this idea that you have to build different pieces of the business to put all this stuff together was much harder to sell investors on. And I agree. I think that's why we had a hard time raising money in the early days for this idea. Sometimes fundraises are fascinating, reflecting and learning opportunities for the founders because they get to hear all these different perspectives, some right, some obviously wrong. When you heard that kind of feedback that, you know, look, there's so many gates and things you have to do to get this right. What was going through your mind? It was definitely confidence destroying because they were right. It was a riskier bet. I always said that the investors that did invest in Carta at the time we were called eShares were very courageous investors because it was a terrible idea at the time. I could tell you all the reasons why an investor would not invest. Cap tables was a small market. I'm an unproven entrepreneur. My last startup failed. Liquidity, there have been many companies that have tried to solve the private stock market problem and have failed. There's just so many reasons not to invest. I think the investors that did invest really saw the vision and were captured by the vision of what we were trying to accomplish. And they just believed, hey, this company has a unique wedge on this. Everybody that invested in the early days did not invest in a cap table software company. They invested in the idea of building liquidity into the private markets. And they believed that what we were going to do that was unique, that nobody else did before was we would own the cap table and that would earn us the right and the privilege to build liquidity in the private markets. And that was the thesis that you had to believe back then. In hindsight, it seems rather obvious that the atomic unit of value being the line item on a cap table, equity ownership, could branch out into so many other things. Why does that seem so obvious in hindsight, but was not so obvious then? It's a great question. I think at the time, 
cap tables felt very niche and very opaque because it was handled by law firms. Nobody really thought about what it would be like if you had cap table information and structured data. This idea of dematerializing the cap table, putting in the cloud and making it structured data, nobody had seen anything like that before. And then once that happened and you could see you had an API into cap tables, you could build software on the cap table, suddenly the ideas exploded around it. Nobody knew how that could look. This combination of a niche market with nobody's seen anything like it before. You couldn't rationalize your way into this investment. You only had to have passion for the space. And all of the investors that did this were passionate about the private market space. Like you, you know, they're alternate assets investors. They love private market stuff. They love alt- alts. And that's why they invested. It's fascinating to think about because you mentioned some of these investors saying there were so many gates and things that had to work. On one hand, that all makes sense. But when you think about the kernel of what's so core to private markets, it's equity ownership. That's not just related to the end asset owner. That could be the individual employee, but it could also be the venture fund or the late stage growth fund and all of them own assets in private markets that need to be mapped. So how did you think about the sequencing of building out the different businesses there because you've now built investor tools in addition to employee or company ownership tools. In a lot of ways, we've defied the conventional wisdom. Most venture-backed companies, the conventional wisdom is do one thing and do it really well and focus on that. From the beginning, we've been a plate-spinning company. We've always felt like we should spin a lot of plates and pursue a lot of different initiatives, in part because we think it helps with our network effect where we can work on multiple nodes at the same time and converging these nodes together. Also, it helps with diversification. So if one thing doesn't work, we have something else that's working. We can buy time with different projects. One of the things I always tell founders is, of course, VCs will tell you, to focus on one thing because they've already got diversification built into their portfolio. They have multiple ideas and bets on the table, but you don't. And so you need to diversify for your own business. After we launched CapTable software, our second product was 49A valuations. At the time, and this is still true today, we have a very simple framework for how we decide whether we go after a new market or not. And the biggest one is if it's an N of one market, meaning one that there could be one and only one winner where you have usually some form of network effect or economies of scale that allows us to be uncompetitive in that market in a good way. And then the second is if we have edge in that market. And we don't need tangentialness because oftentimes two markets can appear very disparate. They may not be tangential, but you may have edge in that market because you've won a different market. And a classic example, of course, is cap tables and 49A. They were completely different markets at the time. Cap tables was a legal product. 49As was an accounting or valuation firm product, completely different customers, completely different vendors, completely different services. But the 49A providers needed the cap table to do their math. So we decided if we had the cap table and structured data, we would have edge. We would be able to do a 49A faster, better, cheaper than, than traditional valuation firms because we had already structured the cap table. And so we entered the 49A market. And now today, we're the largest 49A provider in the country. We own about 80% of the market seven years later. Today, you can't be a standalone cap table software provider without offering 49A valuations and vice versa. You can't be a 49A provider without offering cap table software. Those two markets have become forever linked together, which at the time, eight years ago, seven years ago, they weren't. They were completely different markets. And so whenever we look at markets and you see all the different things we're doing, whether it's compensation, fund administration, what we keep looking for is where can we be N of one and where do we have edge? On that point, 
Are you actively seeking out these markets as you're kind of pulling back to this kernel of we have the single source of truth or you have the Magna Carta? I think that's part of the reason why you rename the company Carta. Or is this you know, customers providing you feedback and saying, hey, we want these products given that we already have this, this, and this from you. How much of that balance with a network effects business is this push versus pull? It's a great question. I think it's some of both. I usually hate that answer because it's so non-helpful. What I would say is very consistent is any market or problem that we see solved with spreadsheets, we get in- intrigued by. And then any market that we see that's solved by spreadsheets that we have edge in, we want to go after. If you look at cap table software, that's a spreadsheet problem. Back in 2013, 14, it was managed on a spreadsheet. What we said is we're going to take it out of a spreadsheet. We're going to make the cap table real time in the cloud. And that was our value proposition. And we did that. 49A, it's a spreadsheet problem. They built these big financial models on spreadsheets to calculate the valuation. We said, we're going to take all that spreadsheet math and put it in software, make it real time in the cloud. And that's what we did with 49A. If you look at fund administration, it's a spreadsheet problem. Traditional fund admins send you a spreadsheet of your P&L, your income statement and balance sheet, and your schedule of investments, and you receive it and you consume it in a spreadsheet. You do calculations on it. We said, we're going to take that SOI and we're going to make it real time and put it in the cloud. If you look at Carta Total Comp, which is our compensation benchmarking product, that competes with Radford, which is a spreadsheet product. You literally buy a spreadsheet from them that you then calculate you know, how much you should pay people. We said, we're going to integrate with their HRIS system. We're going to integrate with your cap table, and we're going to give you benchmarks real time and in the cloud. So anything we see with spreadsheets, we immediately get intrigued. And then anything we see where we have edge, we go after. How much are you competing with the inertia and speed of technology innovation? Because you mentioned, one, you started doing this in 2012-13 when technology itself and the cloud wasn't as developed as it is today. But now things are much easier to start companies, run companies, et cetera, in the cloud. And you mentioned that you're competing with spreadsheets. How many more markets are you competing with spreadsheets in as you think about the continued growth of Carta? And how do you keep up with the pace of continued technology innovation where I'd imagine today in 2022 is different than 2013, 2014? That's such a great question. Like, when do you run out of spreadsheet ideas? What's amazing about this is there's more spreadsheet ideas than most people realize. One of the things we're looking at now, we haven't gotten into, but we're looking at taxes. A lot of taxes is managed in a spreadsheet. And can we help with that? But also what happens is a lot of these ideas create new spreadsheets that have to exist. Just the idea of managing the cap table now in software People are constantly downloading spreadsheets out of Carta and manipulating them to figure out what their equity is worth and how much it's going to be and how much should they sell and how much how much would they pay in taxes. All of these things are built out of the software that we've created. New spreadsheets are being created based on the data that we're collecting. We have a new product called Carta Tax Advisory, which is literally taking all of that spreadsheet software that employees and investors are creating to manage their investments and their equity and how much it's going to be worth and can they borrow against it and should they sell it, we're productizing that and putting it in software. I often say to Carta employees, what's fun about Carta is, I don't know what the inverse of an onion is, but it's like the more layers we peel, the more layers we get to unpeel, the more problems we solve, the more problems we get to solve. And that's what's incredible about creating more data is when you create more data, there's more data to be created. It's a fascinating point and a really interesting segue into what more data means for private markets, both philosophically as well as practically. On one hand, private markets have been 
exciting to people because of the inefficiencies, in part because of lack of data and many respects because of spreadsheets. Uh, and in other parts, they are becoming transformed due to data and becoming more liquid thanks to the likes and advent of Acarta X and other ways to access private markets and all this data that's coming with it. How do you think about the interplay between private markets becoming more efficient and liquidity being both a feature and a bug for private markets as you talk about the broader picture of this around competing with the ideas that are spreadsheets and things like that? Private markets is an interesting because it implicit in the market is it has a lot of contradictions built into it, particularly contradictions that affect liquidity. One of the contradictions, of course, is you get all the private market data is private. You can't share it. And to have liquid, transparent markets, you need to be able to share data and pricing information. In private markets, companies don't have to, to share that. And that makes it intrinsically a contradiction with liquidity. Another contradiction around private markets is you get to choose your investors. In the public market, anybody can buy any stock. It's a legal right of being in a publicly registered security is that anybody has access to it. You can't deny access. But in the private markets... Only people that are allowed to buy, who kind of know the CEO or approved to buy, can buy stock. And you can only sell it if the CEO allows it as well. And so it's very restricted, which contradicts this idea of sort of a liquid, fair, transparent market. Another interesting contradiction of private markets from public is that public markets, price is set by the last buyer. And this price moves by each new buyer that enters the market. In private markets, the price is set by the first buyer, the lead investor, and then everything else follows from that. It really comes into this question that you posed, Michael, which is, is liquidity or feature or a, or a bug? And the private markets, they have set up structurally the marketplace or the way that equities are transferred and bought and sold so that lack of liquidity is a feature of the system. And CEOs only have to engage in transactions when they have perfect information. I know exactly who's buying, who's selling, what price they're transacting on, when the transaction is going to happen, and so on. That is a very unique feature of the private markets. And that's why liquidity is hard to create in the private world. So what does that make you think as you're transforming private markets through more transparency, more investor access, more ownership too, more people now own stock in private markets. They work at a private company, mostly tech companies at this point. And then have the ability to trade that on something like Carta X. How do you think about the interplay of those two things as you're creating more transparency and liquidity, but also recognizing that some of these features of private markets being illiquid, being less transparent when it comes to price discovery and being inefficient may actually be good for those who are participants or holders of private market assets? I think you have to build a better liquidity product for private companies than they can get in the public world. The public markets work very well to create liquidity. However, one of the problems in the public markets is it's a one-size-fit-all. There's one liquidity product for every company, and they all use the same product. It's same exchange, same liquidity levels, same market makers, same buyers and sellers. Everything's the same. And I think in the private markets, we have this opportunity to build a stock market that works for all types of companies based on their liquidity needs. One of the things that we believe is that continuous trading is the wrong way to do a stock market. The reason why we have continuous trading is stock markets were born in pubs where you would walk into a pub and you'd have 100 shares of the East Indian Company and you'd write, I have 100 shares of the East Indian Company. I want to sell for 50 bucks. And you'd go home and you'd go back to the pub every day. And three days later, the bartender would tell you somebody else came in and wanted to buy your 100 shares of East India Company, and that's how you consummated a trade. 
So that evolved into our continuous trading markets. But if you were to rebuild a market from scratch, you wouldn't do it that way. You would do it in auctions. You would aggregate liquidity at a point in time. The reason you would want to do that is you can decide the intervals of when these auctions happen based on the liquidity level of the company. Imagine if you had high-frequency auctions. Facebook might be trading every nanosecond. They'd have an auction that everyone would buy. They'd find a clearing price and they'd execute all the trades at that price. But let's say you're a small cap stock on NASDAQ. You might only trade every five minutes and throw an auction every five minutes because the small cap stocks are the biggest victims of one size fits all trading market. They have huge costs to trade, huge spreads. They don't need nanosecond level liquidity. One trade every five minutes, as long as everybody could enter their bids and asks, is totally fine. You could imagine that as this company, let's say, has an earnings release and volume spikes, they could change that five minute interval to every 30 seconds. And then as trading activity dissipates, that interval goes back to five minutes. The reason that a company would want that is volatility is a bad thing for companies. Volatility is just the short term imbalance between supply and demand. This is a way that a high-frequency auction exchange could help these companies manage volatility by getting the interval right to equalize the supply and demand curves and find equilibrium. This is what we're experimenting with in the private markets. I think the future of private market liquidity is auctions. So some companies may only be doing this once a year. Some might be doing it once a quarter. Some might be doing it once a month. You can imagine as a company wants more and more liquidity, they would do this more frequently and liquidity would come as the company grows. But smaller companies could start once a year, once every two years, and you could set the interval based on the company's liquidity needs. When you talk about this, my brain actually goes to the public markets in the context of thinking about the fact that even public companies, you could argue maybe don't benefit from having mark-to-markets on a daily basis or these referendums because it's not healthy for them or their employees to be dealing with volatility in stock prices as they then don't have the right incentives to build for the long term. They're building for quarterly earnings releases and the way in which the markets evaluate them in that regard. Sure, there are some positives to that. Do you think we'll ever live in a world where rebuilding the private markets from a liquidity perspective and thinking about how to create a new market in private markets actually then educates the public markets on how to build a better, more long-term and enduring public markets environment? The public market is a very good product and it's a very formidable competitor. The goal for Carta, if we can be so ambitious, is to see if we can provide a liquidity product to companies that's better than the public markets. And one of the features of that will be better managed volatility. Another feature will be the CEO gets to control the information flow, the data, the liquidity levels of their stock, as opposed to when they go into the public markets and then it's a complete free for all. For example, in the private markets, I said all the bad things about private markets with restrictions and who can buy and sell and all of those things. One of the good things is because you get to decide who are buyers and sellers, there's no such thing as an activist investor in the private markets. That can't exist because they would never get the opportunity to invest. There's no such thing as short selling in the private markets. Alignment, I would say one argument for why a lot of innovation is done in the private markets is because you can get duration alignment. In the public markets, you're managing investors that have 10-year duration to 10-second duration on your cap table. But in the private markets, because you get to select who you choose, you can say to your investors, hey, this is going to take six to eight years of work for us to realize this. And they're all on board. You don't have selling pressure too soon before you're able to take on and see these big projects through. And so there's a lot of advantages that if a CEO could control their own private stock market for their stock, 
it really helps the company. And so our job at Carta is to figure out how do we build a better liquidity product taking advantage of the rules in the private markets that companies would say, actually, I'd rather stay private and liquid than go public. On that point, it feels like the gap is shrinking between public and private markets with the likes of Carta X being created. And NASDAQ obviously has their own version of this as well. You've built from the ground up and started with startups and now have grown and scaled as companies have gotten bigger in private markets. How do you think about taking companies in public markets and bringing them over to the private markets. Is that something you think about as well? And and sure, we could see take privates happen, but is that something you see being a way to narrow that gap and get to a world that you describe this better managed volatility product for founders and CEOs? I hope so. Certainly in the last 10 years, the number of public companies has gone down and more companies are going private than are going public. Most now, the reason to go private is through private equity and restructuring. And it's often because they want to pursue a more ambitious strategy and they need long duration capital that they just can't get in the public market. So that's why they go private. But all of these are turnarounds because they come in, they go private, and then the expectation is they'll do what they need to do for three, five, seven years, and then they'll go back to being public to get to liquidity. I hope there will be a new world order in the next five to 10 years that Carta can help accelerate, which is going private isn't a pit stop. It could be a destination, both for new companies, of course, that want to stay private, but also for public companies that say, hey, you know, being public isn't all that great. I'd love to get all the benefits of being private. And in fact, the only reason I went public was to get liquidity. And if I could stay private and get liquidity, why would I even stay public? On that point, I think what you're building around Carta X and enabling employees to get liquidity in private markets means that everybody can be an owner. And you have this whole concept of ownership. You've talked about this in contrast with the employee era versus now the ownership era. Walk us through what you mean by that, the employee or payroll era versus the ownership era and what that means for more companies staying private and staying private long term. In the arc of history, I view labor compensation started with serfdom, where you were legally free, but you were economically indentured to the land you worked. I think we've evolved in the Industrial Revolution to what I'll call the payroll era, where you rent your time for money, and then you're on your own for saving and buying productive assets and investments. I think the next era of labor compensation will be the ownership era, where you will work not just for cash for short-term needs, but you'll work for productive assets for long-term financial gain, long-term financial wealth. One of my favorite quotes, the future is here. It's just not evenly distributed. I think that's already happened in technology as everybody gets equity in, in the companies that they work for. It hasn't quite spread out beyond that, but we're starting to see pockets of it. Uh, we're seeing in food manufacturing like Chobani that they've started giving equity to even the employees and the dairy farmers. We're starting to see it in entertainment and sports, the uh, Professional lacrosse league gives equity to all their players in entertainment because entertainment's moving from a royalty model to more of a kind of an M&A model where you start a project, you build a documentary or film or a series, and then you sell it to one of the streamers. And they're financing these in part with equity by giving the actors and actresses and even some of the extras, the sound crew equity in the film so that they get paid out when the film is sold. So you're starting to see this expand outside of tech. Part of our goal is to spread the message that this is the way that labor should be compensated. Obviously, our view is that one of the reasons it hasn't expanded more broadly is because it's been hard to do. There was no payroll for equity. Our job is to make 
equity ownership as simple, easy as payroll. And in 20 or 30 years, people will look back and say, hey, could you believe in the early 2000s? Nobody got equity. They only worked for cash. That will seem crazy to people 50 years from now. Intuitively, it makes so much sense that when people feel ownership over things, they care more and are more invested. What are the behavior changes that you see when people have this ownership? And then how does it manifest itself in terms of transforming private markets as you think about building the infrastructure? For me, the biggest thing, noticeable change that I see with ownership is that people have patience. When they get a paycheck each month, it's come and go. The paycheck goes in, it comes out, they'll have a little bit of extra savings and that's what it is. It's very ephemeral. When people have equity it just gives them a different duration. They're not thinking month to month, quarter to quarter. They're thinking year to year, even sometimes longer. They're the four-year equity grant. I'm just in it for four years at least to see this thing through. One of the things that is sometimes lost for a lot of people is big projects take time. It takes patience. That's why it's so important for tech companies as a sector to have adopted equity. And these startups don't get created overnight to build technology, to build sales, to build marketing, to build delivery and customer success. These things will take years to pay off. You're starting to see in private equity, five years from now, maybe seven, private equity will look like tech. It's going through a massive change right now where every private equity firm is starting to give equity to all the employees because they want to all be aligned. It's a five to seven year plan to buy a company, create growth or efficiency into this company, and then sell it in five to seven years. And let's get alignment from the whole team. If you're just paying people in cash, it's hard to incentivize them to work on a five to seven year time horizon. But if you give them equity, it's it's much easier. How do you think about that from the perspective of exporting this concept to all different industries and then building out the investment infrastructure and investment merits for that. I mean, a certain type of business may not have the same growth potential as an early stage startup that has the potential to be 100x, but also could potentially be a zero. But another industry where the growth isn't the same or the business doesn't have the likelihood of becoming this massive business Does it make sense for all employees to have equity? And then how do you construct a private market around that as well that has both sides happy, the employees, but also the investors who potentially would invest in those opportunities? Tech works really well with stock options because it's such a volatile, high beta industry. Black-Scholes equation is very high on tech because you have such a wide variety of outcomes. So that's why stock options work really well. If you look at private equity, which is not power law the way that tech is, they don't use stock options as their financial instrument for incentive. It's usually some form of management interest payout, which is liquidity. They get paid out if they meet certain ROIC thresholds and so on. Other more mainstream businesses will use profit interests that are more cash flow strong businesses versus high growth businesses. There's a lot of forms of equity and shared ownership. And depending on the sector and type of business, we'll decide what type of financial instrument to use. When you look at these different sectors, the ones that will adopt it first will be the ones where talent is scarce, where you need to attract talent and suddenly cash itself doesn't become a differentiator. Cash benefits plus equity becomes the differentiator. Those will be the ones that adopt it first. What's I think structural about this is that once a sector or industry adopts equity ownership, it can't go away. It's a one-way door. Just like any employee benefit, once you start giving it to attract talent, you can't stop. And that's where I think this becomes a new normal. The other piece of this that becomes a really intriguing new normal is 
the concept of more and more people becoming equity owners or owning quote unquote alternative assets. This could potentially be what helps make things go mainstream. But if you think about it, just from a statistics perspective, there's about 40 or so trillion dollars of private wealth in the US. This is with high net worth individuals. And the average amount of exposure with these wealth managers who manage that capital is about one to 5%. Many wealth managers have like 2% in alts, which means that even a lot of the high net worth channel doesn't have a lot of exposure to alts. So think about what that means for the number of people who actually have any exposure to private markets, much less there's not a ton of people who have exposure to the stock market in this country either or globally. Do you think that this concept, exporting this beyond technology companies and tech markets into, like you mentioned, private equity backed companies, it may be a food management business or whatever it may be. Is this the best way to on-ramp people, including non-accredited investors, to private markets? And then like education so key, this gets them to learn about private markets. And then from there, they can go wherever. I think the challenge with the financial advisory path into alternative markets is the, the FAs don't have a business model on how to, to monetize investments in private assets. And so that 2% that's allocated to alternative assets is really token. It's, hey, I'm doing this for you, but the 98% is where I monetize because I take BIPs off whatever I'm managing for you in the public markets. But if it's private, I can't take BIPs. There's no liquidity. So how do I get paid on it? To really make alternatives mainstream, at least through the FA channel, which is obviously a big channel, the FAs will have to figure out how to monetize that and make that a viable business for them. And that's why you see so much of it through family office and direct investing today is because you can't get your FA to do it. You really have to do it yourself. Two questions there. I want to put a pin on the wealth management side, but going to the individual side, if so many individuals, accredited or non-accredited, work at private companies and have owner equity ownership in these companies, is that the backdoor way to get everybody invested in or have ownership of some sort of alternative asset? I think so. At Carta today, we've got 2 million shareholders on the platform. These are people that own some equity in a private venture-backed company. 1.6 million are employees. So the vast majority of alternative asset holders are employees. A minority actually got there through risk capital. And I think that's the fastest path and the easiest path for equity ownership. I do think if the government amends the accredited investor rule and, and makes it a little bit easier and more accessible to access alternatives, that will help a lot. The problem with alternatives, of course, is it's sort of the last investment people make in the bull market and the first one they pull out in the bear because it's so illiquid. And so how do you get in and out of it? I think that's going to be the challenge. And that's why it's a harder asset class to invest in because you have to believe in the duration angle of it. Agreed on that point. But you go back to something you just said about financial advisors, not necessarily having the incentives and having it be hard for them to get their clients and alts. Does what you just said about having millions of equity owners on your platform, many of whom are non-accredited, and the fact that you're mapping out all these assets for them and understand the values in private markets, does that make Carta the biggest potential wealth manager going forward? Is this like a massive opportunity where Carta could become this massive wealth manager that traditional financial advisors just can't do? Even in our series seed deck, there's a slide at the end when we said, what could this become? And one path was an exchange and liquidity marketplace. And the other was a wealth manager. And one of the things that we're actually starting to think through now, and we have a, our tax advisory product, which was really a wedge into wealth management, but it's wealth management for the illiquid. 
it's a very different problem set. How do you do wealth management or financial advice for people that are illiquid? The liquid industry is well understood. It's a very mature industry. There's lots of players. Everybody knows how to do it. It's a clear monetization model. It's a clear value proposition. In the private markets, what does wealth management look like when nobody has cash? That's what we're trying to figure out. If we can crack that code and figure out illiquid wealth management, I think we have a huge new, to our earlier discussion, business line where we have an N of one market and we have edge. And many of which are managed on spreadsheets, as it so happens to be. <laughs> That's right. Exactly. On that point, though, what is so different about, one, managing illiquid assets, and two, is there a difference with the relationship that you'd have with many of these employees? Because I'd imagine the first interaction with their creation of wealth is with this platform called Carta. What does that do to them in terms of how they think about where they'd want their wealth to be managed. What's really exciting about what we're doing on the employee side with our tax advisory product is that because we're helping them with taxes, we're getting a look into all of their financials. What's really amazing about providing taxes service when we were talking about industries where you get an edge, everybody goes in the financial wealth management space, which I never quite understood because the customer acquisition costs are so high if you're doing a wealth management startup. And you only get the financial visibility into what they give you. If I'm going to move half my cash assets over to you as my new financial digital advisor or robo-advisor, we only have visibility in that. But if you do their taxes, you legally have to know everything that they have. You have 100% visibility into their financial profile. And that's what's so exciting about starting with tax in the illiquid financial advisory space is we have 100% view into their financial profile. And then what we're finding, of course, is that for many of them, especially if they've stuck with a company for a few years that's done well, 90% plus of their net worth is tied up in that one option grant or the equity of that company that they work for. And that's where we can be really helpful. And if they look at us as hey, you're the advisors, the experts, and how do I manage this golden egg that I've got in my stock option grant? Then you can just help us with the other 10%. And then as I become more and more liquid, we trust you to handle all of my assets for me. Do you see shades of the beginning of Carta with this, with what you just said? Because to me, you've distilled the importance for individuals, asset owners in illiquid markets down to the kernel of what's important for them. That feels very similar to distilling things down to the kernel of the cap table line item for companies and then being able to do all these other things around that once you've done that. Yeah, I love your, your word kernel, Michael. It's this incredible kernel, this wedge that we've found where there's this one very unique and painful problem that people don't know how to handle that we, we are uniquely poised to help them. And then through that, helping them with that one problem, we earn the trust to help them with more. And that's exactly right. Like cap table, we earn the right. We found this cap table problem. We help them with this cap table problem. We earn the right to do their 49A valuations. We earn the right to do their expense accounting. We earn the right then to do their tender offers and their liquidity programs. And that's what we love. We love to find ideas where hit all of those things. It's a spreadsheet involved. <laughs> it's an N of one market. We have competitive edge and we found a wedge or a kernel to start with. And we see a path to growing it into something bigger. It's fascinating to think about the things you can do once you've built all of that around this kind of single idea. And I think that's a great transition into how you've built Carta and your philosophy on company building. Because I think there's a lot embedded in your philosophies on company building with how you've actually built the business. I'd love to transition there and first start with your views on 
people management and company building? Because they do relate to ownership. You've said in the past that people will work harder for themselves than they, they will for anyone else. So how does that relate? to the equity ownership question. Yeah, we're an ownership company. It's one of our values. And one of the things we love to see and we interview for and we have a culture for is act like owners, own the things that you're doing. One of my favorite quips as a manager is when somebody brings me something that they did and they did a great job, I will never say good job to them because I feel like that that implies that they did it for me and I'm rewarding them or complimenting them on the work that they did for me. I'll always say congratulations because that implies they did it for themselves. It's such a small nuance, but I think it's an example where people walk away feeling like, oh, I did that for me and he congratulated me versus I did that for him. We try to embed a lot of these ownership traits throughout the organization. Do you feel that if you're providing companies with this platform and infrastructure to enable them to give employees ownership, whether they're tech or eventually non-tech companies, without kind of imposing your own doctrines on these different founders or managers and their employees, is there a way to build that ethos into the system? Because I think what you're getting to is equity ownership is different from just having a paycheck and collecting a paycheck. Is there a way to benevolently impose that through the platform that you build and help more companies succeed as a result of that? I think so. I'll give you the quintessential example of this in the early days, back in 2014, 15, 16, when we first launched, employees would get, and they still do, this hasn't changed, but we started sending email reminders to employees saying, hey, congratulations, you passed your cliff. You vested your first year of equity. Oh, congratulations, you vested another month. It's a vesting anniversary. We would tell them to help them celebrate the equity that they were earning and accruing over time. It sounds crazy today, but we had many CEOs that were incensed that we were doing this. They were, how dare you communicate to my employees? Don't tell them about the equity. I don't want them thinking about it. I don't want them knowing that they're vesting. I just want all of that in the dark. We told them we wouldn't change it. We would continue doing it. And we lost customers. We had CEOs that got so angry, they quit the service because we did it. But over time, now that's a standard. Everybody likes it. That's expected. That level of transparency is appropriate. The next one I would say is pricing. They should know what the current 49A price is. They should also know what the last preferred price is. You can imagine CEOs, when we turn that feature on, they get really upset about it. They don't want employees to know, but it's really important that they do. The employees should understand that. So these are ways that we're starting to move the industry, move founders and CEOs into, I think, the right direction that I think they will all over time, appreciate that we did this, but inertia is always hard to overcome. People don't like change. On that point, in the ownership era, does management style have to change? I think very much so. Management in 2015 was very opaque. We kept employees in the dark. Today, it's funny, CEOs published their layoff letters. That was never a thing in 2015. Nobody did that. Nobody wrote publicly about stuff that they did internally. Today, it's the norm for CEOs to do this. I think management has to become more transparent with employees. I think they have to be more transparent publicly. I think that is a structural trend that will continue. You've talked about Carta being an innovation company. There's execution companies and innovation companies. How much do you think the concept of people having ownership and equity in a company makes them more likely to feel that they are part of an innovation company rather than an execution company. So when I talk about that, I do this a lot because I recruit against 
other companies that are like database companies or payroll companies or HRAS companies. And if you're a database company or a payroll company, you have clear line of sight to a billion or 5 billion or 10 billion in revenue. There's no question about TAM. You can clearly get to a big outcome if you can just outcompete your competitors. We're in a different business because if you look at any one of our product lines, whether it's cap tables or benchmark compensation or fund administration, any one of those markets is a pretty small market compared to a database or payroll market. We have to stitch together small markets to create bigger markets. It means we have to constantly innovate. It isn't just one product that we out-execute everybody and win. We have to constantly be building new products and entering new markets. Otherwise, we'll stagnate. We'll run out of oxygen in every market that we're in. A lot of that takes time to see through. Instead of having one large S-curve, we have many layers of S-curves that we're building on top of each other. And I think the equity ownership allows employees to come in at any point in the life cycle of this company and join a particular S-curve and be compensated over time for the duration it takes to build one of those new S-curves on top of the existing S-curves. And so for us, we actually just did this internally for our option pool. We're We benchmark ourselves against average companies on Carta, and we're far more employee-owned than the average company, which makes sense. We're an employee ownership company, so we should be. But I think that's been one of the keys of our success in creating alignment in the organization. Are there things you look for when you're hiring employees about what will make them more intrinsically motivated or ownership-driven when you're interviewing them? You can really tell when employees have a passion for something that they're working on versus looking for a job. It's very clear. It doesn't matter what the passion is. If they have passion for ice skating or passion for bridge, but they have passion for things that they really care about that are bigger than just them and sort of what they'll work for. And then you see them come to Carta and they get excited about the vision, what we're trying to accomplish. I used to do this survey with employees. I would say, why do you come to Carta and why do you stay? And the number one answer that everybody gives for coming to Carta is the mission. We seem to be very good at attracting mission-driven people. What's interesting is it changes when you ask them why they stay. The number one answer is always the people. It's really interesting. We attract people for the mission and then they stay for their colleagues. So you mentioned vision. Paint a picture for us of what the future looks like, both Carta and then private markets. I think for Carta... Our hope is if we continue to execute on the things we're working on, we'll really become sort of the operating system for venture capital, how companies get started, how they set up their investors, how they set up their employees, how they set up their cap table, how they compensate their employees, all of those things. Then on the other side, in our venture capital business line, we'll be managing all the funds and the SOI and we'll manage their LPs. And until the last few years, venture capital was a niche boutique industry It's now becoming mainstream. It's becoming a scale asset class and it needs infrastructure to run as a scale asset class. And hopefully Carta will be the infrastructure to allow venture to scale the way private equity, real estate, and all the other alternative assets scaled. I think for private markets in general, I do think you'll see a lot more liberalization of what people will invest in. Venture, I hope, will become much more democratized. More people will have access to venture. And you're starting to see it. So many angel investors, so many employees are investing in their friends, companies. That's starting to happen. It hasn't quite gotten mainstream yet, but I think the North Star is there. It'll be interesting to see, can that expand to private equity? Does it expand to other asset classes as well? You mentioned some of these other asset classes, and I do think to some extent... The concepts of 
ownership and passion are related and passion assets are making some sort of noise in the private markets. Now we'll see in a more constrained equity market, that's a little tougher on people's checkbooks and everything, whether that will continue at its rapid pace that it did in 2020, 2021. How linked do you think the idea of ownership and passion investing go together. I think passion investing, it's great. It's a very retail focus. Retail investors love to invest in things they're passionate about. And I think that's great. I think institutional investors will bring a more scientific mind to it. I have a unique perspective on the difference between investing and speculating. And so I think, for example, maybe unpopular view is that investing in commodities to me is not investing, it's speculation. Investing requires that humans have to work at it. There has to be somebody creating value for it. That's why I think equity investing is investing because you're investing in a company, you're betting on people that are actually creating value in the world, but buying corn or gold, and dare I say crypto, Bitcoin, as an example, I don't see as investing, it's just speculation because there's nobody actually doing work to create value that you're investing in. And that's, I think, a very fundamental difference. So it's to say, when I say real estate, if you're just buying land and not doing anything with it, that's not investing. That's just speculating on land prices. But if you're buying a house and rebuilding it and putting elbow grease and blood, sweat and tears into it and then flipping it, that's investing because you're putting human capability behind it. That's a really fundamental difference in investing. I have two questions for you. I'm going to break the mold of what I usually do. I usually ask the final question. What's your most favorite and interesting alternative investment? Your prior answer is a great segue to that question. I have one more question after that, because I think it's such a fascinating thing to discuss with you. But let's start with this one. What is your favorite or most interesting alternative investment? The thing that I get most excited about is doesn't exist today. So maybe I'll cheat a little bit. We're working on a, a Carta Venture Index, which is really an index of the top 100 companies. Think of the Dow 30, S&P 500, but for venture-backed startups that we track. If we can get that index published and out there, and we can create an investment vehicle against that index, a publicly traded investment vehicle against that index, then we can give VC exposure to the masses. Not necessarily on a stock picking level, but they can at least get exposure to venture as an asset class. We're working hard on that. If we can pull that off, that'd be super, super exciting. On that point, I do want to ask, because it's important to cover, the democratization of access to private markets. What is your view on that? And maybe your prior answer alludes to this of how people should get access, but what are your thoughts on giving everybody access to private markets? I'm supportive. I think the thing that I would do, and this is what our policy team is working on and pushing for, is I don't understand why we don't allow alternative investment in retirement accounts. Because the whole point of alternatives is alternatives are long duration investments. Public market stuff is short duration. You can take your money out anytime you want. But in private markets, or by definition, you have to hold it for a long period of time. So where that works really well is in retirement accounts, where you can't touch your 401k anyway. You can't sell it. You can't use the capital. You might as well match duration to duration and allow the public to invest in alternative assets through retirement accounts for multi-years, even a decade or two, because that money's tied up as it is. One of the things that I think is really missed on the policy side is everybody looks at it as just like, oh, should we just open it up to everybody? And they're worried that people will make bad investments and put their money in places that they can't get it out of. What they really should look at is how do we allow more portfolio diversification and long-term 
vehicles like retirement assets across multiple asset classes. And that's where I hope the administration starts to look. It's something that would make so much sense for that to happen. Now, I want to end this podcast with a question that may seem like it makes less sense, or at least the answer may seem like it makes less sense and bring it full circle because you started this podcast by saying that this was a non-obvious market, non-obvious investable opportunity, maybe even non-obvious founder given your prior background, but you've built something that has seemed so obvious. So what is the advice that you would give a founder or a VC when it comes to thinking about what non-obvious trait or skill set may make somebody successful? One of the things I think about in the business side that's non-obvious is think about the transaction that doesn't exist yet. And can you go create that transaction? It's one of my favorite pieces of advice I give to people. And I think something similar is think of a piece of work that hasn't been done yet. Can this person, this founder, go create that piece of work? That's the unique thing that doesn't exist in the world. I think one of the, the things that we're all naturally biased to is we think about the stuff that that exists and can somebody go do the things that exist the canonical form of a person is they should be able to do the things that exist in the world and can they build something can they do this can they do that and this idea of what doesn't exist in the world and is this person uniquely situated to create that thing that doesn't exist in the world we talk a lot about interviewing and hiring where most interview and hiring is based on lack of weakness whenever you review somebody like well they weren't good at this they weren't good at that as opposed to doubling down on their strengths. We're naturally that way because that's how school is. You can get three A's and a C in your report card and your parents will talk to you about the C. They won't say, hey, how come you didn't get A pluses? We should double down on your strength and you should knock these things out of the park. They'll focus on how do you get the C up to a B or an A. And we're just kind of wired that way. And I think most people, especially founder personalities, are power law. You double down on their strengths, you see where their strengths can take you, and then just compensate for their weaknesses. That could not be a better point or theme for something alternative going mainstream which is what you've done with Carta, which is how a framework for thinking about these small markets that then become massive markets and way of even thinking about life. So that is a fantastic way to end this podcast. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast, Henry. It was a pleasure to have you. Thanks, Michael. So much fun. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Alt Goes Mainstream. I hope you enjoyed it. You can find more episodes of the podcast at any of your favorite podcast sites, and you can read more about alts at my Substack, altgoesmainstream.substack.com, and follow me on Twitter at, at Michael Sidgmore and at GoesAlt. Thanks a lot, and have a great day. We're going-